Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 302. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 302 you're listening to. My guest today is Leslie Gaston Bird. She has been in the industry for over 30 years, 12 of that in public radio, including National Public Radio, 17 in sound for picture, 13 years as an educator. She's the author of the book Women in Audio. She's a member of the AES, where she chairs numerous committees, and she's on the Board of Governors. She runs Mix Messiah Productions as a freelance re-recording mixer and sound editor. She was a tenured associate professor of recording arts at the University of Colorado, Denver, and is co-director for the Sound Girls UK chapter and Sound Girls Scholarships Travel Grants. And I could go on and on and on of her accomplishments. She's been busy, to say the least, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show. So, Leslie Gaston Bird, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the beauty of labeling your work. Mm, coffee's almost gone. I'm gonna have to do another cup. Well, labeling your work, what are, what are we talking about? Labeling your work, that's what we're talking about. This comes up for me because I am, uh, I just was able to uh, purchase a used Fostex quarter inch eight track reel to reel why did i buy that i know what on earth am i thinking well truth be known i've got about a dozen tapes here on quarter inch reel to reel eight track that were done on a fostex machine in i don't know 94 93 i can't even remember this is a band that i was in and i've been holding on to these tapes for years hunting for the right fostex machine some of those early machines were pieces of junk they were great at the time you bought them, but then over the years, they just degraded. And fortunately, uh, I found one for a great price. There is one catch, track eight is not playing back, and that's a problem. So off to my great repair person here in the Bay Area, I took it, and uh, I'm waiting to hear back what the damage is gonna be, and hoping it's not drastic. But back to the point. So the tapes were recorded by an old friend of mine, David Plank who is a Bay Area recording engineer. I'm not really sure if David's involved in recording anymore. Last I heard, he wasn't. The band I was in worked with David a, a decent amount. And David was one of these types of engineers that was absolutely meticulous in his documentation. And I noted it then, and many years later, I'm really thrilled that he was so meticulous because he recorded these tapes. These were demos that were done in preparation for a new record that never came out or was never recorded. But I really love these songs and I want them to see the light of day. But David's capturing of the details of just the track sheets we're talking about here. I'm not, you know, he didn't like create a, a recording the Beatles style book out of the, out of the thing. He just made great track sheets, clearly labeled. He did a great job. And I try to follow that example. So, one thing that I, I mentioned a few episodes ago as we've crossed the threshold of 300 episodes with the show is I'm going back and I'm reevaluating how I've documented the shows, how I've labeled them, how I've stored them, everything. I am meticulously following 
David's example, and that is label everything. Label it clearly. Label it so that the next person who opens that session, no matter when it is, is going to know exactly what they're looking at. And if for some reason the technology does not cooperate, I've made it so that all the WAV files are available in a separate folder, individually labeled for the session. So everything I'm doing right now, talking to you, will be labeled, you know, like monologue, WCA302, so that all those parts go together. And it's been, uh, it's been hard, you know? That many episodes and being that detailed really takes great patience. What I realized in doing it, I thought, you know, if I was as meticulous as Dave Plank was when I started this, I wouldn't be doing this right now. I'd be doing something completely different, enjoying myself or working on some other project. But instead, because I wasn't thorough at the time, I'm having to go back and do this. After a while, my back's hurting, my arms are hurting, and I got to get up and stretch. So what's the takeaway from this bit of rambling? The takeaway is this. The project you're working on right now, take the extra five to 20 minutes it will take you, even if it takes you a half an hour. Label everything. Prep it. Know where it is. Don't be lazy. Don't do the whole audio 101, audio 102, you know, unlabeled audio tracks. And also make sure your, your tracks are kept with the session. Now, one thing that's pretty brilliant about some of the DAWs out there, like Logic, uh, Universal Audio's Luna, is that all the audio stays encapsulated with the folder, which is really cool. Pro Tools doesn't do that yet, so you have to be a little more proactive in, in monitoring where your tracks are going. But do your best. Follow that stuff, man. Do not let it get past you. Label it, prep it for the next person because you don't know what somebody's gonna do with that stuff years down the road. You just don't. And, and one extra bit before I let you go, I'm gonna start doing this on my music sessions too. Any mix I do from here on out, I'm at the end of the mix, once everybody's signed off, I take screenshots of the plugins and I put those in a separate folder and it's so easy to do and doesn't take a huge investment in time. And it can help the next person out if they're trying to figure out, well, okay, he was using this plugin, but we don't have that plugin. And we're gonna try to replicate those settings. It's so much easier if they can open up a screenshot of the plugin and see exactly what you were doing. And some of you might just say, well, you know, this is for my own personal projects. It really doesn't matter. Treat your own projects like you would your client's projects. Because if you treat it like that, then you treat it professionally. And then years down the road, when you go back to redo something, you'll look back and go, oh, so glad that I put forth the effort to label this properly. All right, that's my rant. Label away, document, make sure you know where things are, make copies in multiple locations. I'll revisit that whole topic in another episode. Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Leslie Gaston Bird here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Where are we talking from? Where are you at? I'm in Brighton, England. I was looking through your resume and I was like, first of all, I was blown out of the water by all that. Second, I was like, well, is she in England? Is she in the US? Is she English? Is she in America? I couldn't tell. <laughs> I, I was too confused. I thought, well, I'll just wait till I get on the call. Yeah. I was born in Ohio. I lived in Colorado for 20 years, and now I'm in Brighton. Let's jump right into that. What brought you to Brighton? Oh, well, that's a long story. I was at an AES conference in about 2006, and I met a nice man from England, and he followed me to America. I'm paraphrasing. This is like... <laughs> 
the 22nd version of my wedding and marriage <laughs> and uh, domestic bliss. We started our family in Colorado, and then I think it's hard to acclimate to America if you're from another country. So we came to England, thought we'd try it here for a while. So we were 10 years in America, and then we came here. And how are you finding that for you? It's hilarious. It's, I think, culturally, it's, I don't know, it's not so much of a culture shock, right? Because I was used to my husband and family, and I traveled to England actually in 2011 to do a Fulbright. So I was at the University of York for three months. Then I gave birth to my second child. (laughs) But yeah, I've, I've been coming back and forth to England, so it wasn't too much of a culture shock. But I think from an employment and work perspective, there's a lot to sort of learn. It's not been easy, to be honest, but it's all right. It's all right. I think I'm at a time in my life where I can be a little bit more self-guided. You're figuring it out one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are all chapters in our lives, right? I'm 50. I just turned 50 last year. So yeah, there's, oh man, a lot to learn about being 50 and a lot to learn about being 50, working in a new country, being in an underrepresented group. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trying to find a job in audio. It's it's crazy. Well, welcome to the 50 Club. Yay. I've been here since November, and I'm about to venture off into the next phase, the 51 Club, that is. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I know sometimes I'm like, I made it this far. <laughs> I guess it's all downhill from here. <laughs> right? That's what they say. Now they say 50 is the new 40, so I think we're good. Well, so let's go back in time. Where in Ohio did you grow up? Dayton, Ohio, birthplace of aviation, hometown of the funk. Yeah, I grew up close to where the Ohio players and Lakeside and all that was happening. Oh, yeah. Wow. And a lot of car industry, car manufacturing was a big thing in that part of Ohio. That was my hometown. Growing up, when did audio become something of importance? importance to you? When did it become something that distracted you from other things? I think at a very young age, I remember when I was very small, younger than six, I want to say maybe three or four, but let's just go with younger than six. I remember my dad had a reel-to-reel machine, like I think it was an Ampex. And I remember the way the tape smelled. I remember the boxes, the scotch magnetic tape, quarter-inch machine, And it was really cool. It had these little rubber stoppers that you would put over the reel. We called them reel hubs, I guess, in the 80s. But they were just little rubber stoppers because it was like a home reel-to-reel recorder. And Dad liked to record us, our little baby voices. And I remember being able to thread that machine with my tiny little fingers. Oh, yeah, I could thread that machine. Wow. When did it become a, a distraction? I don't know. I think in the 80s is when I started to experiment with gear. And my dad had a box of cables that he had from Radio Shack, like weird cables. Do you remember the gray cables you'd get from Radio Shack? Gray phono cables and gray quarter inch cables and tip sleeve things that were quarter inch, but not really. (laughs) I remember I wanted to record the soundtrack from Alice in Wonderland. Not the Disney one. This was the one with Fiona Richardson and Dudley Moore and Peter Sellers. And it had such a great soundtrack. And I said, I want to make a cassette of this movie that I'm watching on television. And that was the beginning of it. That was basically the rest of my life was trying to figure out how to get sound from that thing into that other thing. So I got the box of cables and I recorded it from VCR. So you can imagine the noise floor was terrible. So we had (laughs) the broadcast noise floor, the VCR noise floor going on to a cassette. I still have that tape. 
Yeah, it's funny how we hold on to cassettes in that way, little mementos of audio from our childhood. Will Winded Audio become something that you thought, I could make a living doing this? I guess it was senior in high school, maybe junior or senior year. And it wasn't audio maybe at first. I think it was camera operator. I think I wanted to be a camera operator first. And I remember being in school and there was a, you know, those cable access channels. Mm-hmm. Remember, do they still have them? I don't know. Anyway, there was channel 30 was videotaping something. And I was looking at the cameras. I'm like, I think I, I'd like to work the camera. And and I was volunteering at our cable access channel. And the audio there was pretty jankety. <laughs> I can't remember too much. I just remember these tiny Behringer mixers or some ilk. But I like music. I'm a musician. I played classical piano since I was six or eight years old. I don't remember really when I started lessons. So I put the, my love for music together with my love of technology. But somewhere around my senior year, I said, I think I want to do electronic music or something. And I was looking at all these brochures from colleges and Miami University had a program. Ohio University had electronic music. And then I went to see the program in Indiana. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because they had the studio set up. The studios were for, you know, recording bands and stuff, whereas I think Ohio and Miami were more like synthesizers and experimenting with FM synthesis. But I'm like, yeah, no, I want to. I was an MTV addict when I was 18, back when MTV played music videos. That's right. (laughs) So, you know, I had that rock star mentality like, yeah, I'm going to record Van Halen or something. (laughs) What was the program called? So I was at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and that program was audio technology. And at that time, they only had an associate's degree. So I didn't know if I was going to get my bachelor's degree. I didn't really want a bachelor's degree, but some of the other kids and me were talking about, well, you know, you only have to do like 15 more credits. You might as well get the bachelor's or however many, 22 more credits or something. So they had a telecom program and I finally got to get my hands on a camera. And then that's when they had three chip cameras. So I I learned how to work cameras. I learned about broadcast law. So my bachelor's degree is actually in telecommunications because there wasn't a bachelor's degree in audio at Indiana in 1987. So that came along later. Once you graduated, where did you go from there? At Indiana, they had a campus radio station, WFIU, in Bloomington. And WFIU was a NPR member station, I think they're called. I remember my salary. I was making $4.10 an hour being a board op at WFIU. And then I got a raise. And I was making like four twenty. So I went to NPR after that. I remember we had the satellite demodulators in the control room area. And once in a while, we'd get these feeds on a dot matrix printer. The satellite would, it's not a a fax, but like teletype or something like that. Anyway, once in a while, it would have job opportunities at NPR. And the cool thing about being a board op at a public radio station in 1989, 1990, is they put the telephone number to master control. Like if there was an issue with one of the feeds, you would call Master Control and say, hey, there's a dropout at whatever in this show. And they'd say, oh, thanks for letting us know. Well, I had that number. So I decided to move to D.C. and I called that number, like the satellite Master Control number. I'm like, do you have any jobs? (laughs) So I got an interview. They're like, yeah, you need to talk to Bob. So I talked to Bob and yeah, he invited me down to take a proficiency test. And this is in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. Wow. The mothership, right? Yep, the mothership. 
that's where I was. Wow. Straight out of college. Wunderkind. Did you have the job before you went there? I was a board op before I went there. They didn't hire me. Actually, the reason why I went there is because I was writing letters and they replied saying, thanks for your interest in the job at NPR. We've hired somebody else or whatever the thing was. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, I'm doing exactly what this job description says. So I just went to Washington, D.C. and called the magic phone number and talked to Bob. And I got the test and I got hired like three months after I moved out there. That's how it works, audience. You got to get the magic number and talk to get Bob. Get the magic number. Talk to Bob. Every Any job you want, talk to Bob. So you talk to Bob and then you got hired. Not to be too secretive about this, Bob Knock, I think is still there. I'm not sure if he's retired or not, but thank you, Bob, for hiring me. Bob's great. Yeah, he's the one who, who brought me on board. What were those those days at NPR like? What were you doing? What was the pay like? The pay was great. It was so great that I went into debt right away. <laughs> Being a young college kid, I'm like, I need a synthesizer and an eight track and I'm going to start my own studio. And I did. I built a studio in a closet. I'd like to apologize for my cousin who let me rent her place because I, I modified her walk-in closet and turned it into a recording studio. <laughs> ah, yes. Anyway, so the early days at NPR, what was it like? Everything was mixed on reel-to-reel. We were taking in feeds. I still have dreams about taking in phone feeds using Comrex telephone lines. But it was, you know, it was really neat. I mean, this was so between 1991 and 1995. It was an interesting time, I think, for our country politically. So I took in phone feeds. I had people from all over the world, Johannesburg, London, China, filing reports with me. And I felt pretty important, especially when at five o'clock in the morning, before the show went out to air, there's a really busy time between, actually between four and six in the morning, it, was, it would be really busy. And you had to multitask. You had three phone feeds going on and the morning news feeds from Associated Press and Reuters. And the reporters were grabbing sound bites from these feeds that were coming over satellite and from reporters who were filing their stories. And I've a lot of people compared it to being a short order cook. But I mean, it was like I'm trying to think of all the cool names that were recording from all over the world. I was in the studio with Bob Edwards and Noah Adams. Robert Siegel, Linda Wertheimer, all the big NPR names. All those classic NPR personalities. Yeah. Well, so you were there from 91 to 95, and then you went on to what, Colorado Public Radio? That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, working in D.C. was really an amazing experience. I loved living in Washington, D.C. during that time. I was a young woman getting acquainted with being independent and then also holding my own in a really big city. The thing I loved working about NPR was the technical staff was really diverse. There were 40 techs on staff. Half of them were African-American, half were women. And since then, I have never been on a technical staff that diverse. I don't know what it's like now, but at the time, wow, what a privilege to work in an environment like that. But there was still at that time, very much a perception of glass ceiling. Like even though the staff were diverse, I think a lot of people felt like the cush gigs were going to the guys. And it started to get, again, here we go with the politics, but it was gross. Like everybody was complaining about favoritism and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, you know, uh, I didn't come out here for all that. Yeah. So I decided to start looking and I uh, got hired at Colorado Public Radio. And that was in 1995. 
I became their audio systems manager. I think my first job title there was sound editor. Were the things that you learned at NPR and DC, did they translate just across the board to Colorado Public Radio? In a way, yeah. Yeah, I think that's why they hired me is because, you know, I had that expertise and I could come in and work with the reporters there. And of course, there was a little bit of this hot shit attitude from me like, oh, I'm 25 years old and I was in NPR and I'm going to help you guys. <laughs> I mean, you know, try to be nice <laughs> about it. But I think I did have a little bit of an ego. But some of the stuff I didn't learn at NPR was we were transitioning from analog to digital. And the first workstation that I worked on was called an Arrakis, A-R-R-A-K-I-S, just like that fictional place in Was It Dune, I think. Anyway, there was this really strange digital audio workstation that used red and blue half waveforms. It was... I, it. <laughs> Arrakis? Yeah, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think I started calling it Arrakis. I'm so sorry. It's not around anymore, so it doesn't matter. Really nice people, though. I got to meet the architects of that software. And they made studio furniture, too, and, and consoles. But I went to the program director. I'm like, I think we should use Pro Tools. <laughs> And so in 1998, we got Pro Tools on Windows, no less. So we were using Pro Tools on Windows in 1998. And that's where we're doing our news stories. But then I started to get that sniff that air is changing. And by that, I mean, we were getting to the point where, well, if you can just edit on a computer, I mean, how hard could it be? Let's have the reporters take their own equipment out, do their own stories, come back and edit it. So I sort of trained myself out of a job. We got the reporters uh, Cool Edit Pro, which eventually became Adobe Audition. And I remember <laughs> renting a CompUSA. Is CompUSA still even around? Not that I know of. CompUSA. We rented a classroom and we trained reporters how to edit their own stories. And that was sort of like, I could see the writing on the wall. I'm like, I'm just training myself out of a job. And right around that time, I had friends who were in commercial radio as well. And people start getting fired. I mean, people just were getting let go. We've got radio automation. I actually was one of the people who was programming the computer that put a lot of my DJ and announcer friends out of work. Because if we can record voice tracks from some of my friends who worked for Clear Channel, it's like, oh, we can record the voice tracks in New York and we don't really need local hosts anymore. And so from 98 to 2002, I mean, it just started getting ugly. And I'm like, I need to do something else for a living. So I decided to get into sound for picture. And I went back to school, and that's where I got my master's degree at the University of Colorado. On your resume, you list postmodern company. What is that? Yeah, postmodern company is a post-production facility in Denver. I started working there in 2002. It's no longer owned by the guys who were running it before, Dave Emmerich and, and Chuck Biddlecombe. But the woman who hired me there, and again, props to Patsy Butterfield for bringing me on and believing in me, because I didn't have sound for picture experience. I only had 12 years of public radio experience, but she hired me anyway. And that's when I started doing restoration for... Sony Columbia Pictures, because they had a subcontract to restore all these old film titles. So what was involved in that? What were you doing? That was really educational. I mean, there's nothing like it. I got fast at editing, mm -hmm. and I got to be familiar with film stems, dialogue, music, and effects. And there's nothing like listening to movies over and over and over and over again to sort of get a sense of what goes on the dialogue track, what goes on the effects track, what goes on the music track, how are those things edited together? Mm -hmm. And at the time, this was before Isotope, I think, but there's a 
product from Cambridge. It was called the Cedar Cambridge Noise Reduction System. They still make it. And so that's what we're using to reduce the noise and take out the clicks and pops from these old film titles. So we did, we restored Heart to Heart episodes for DVD and we did The Flying Nun. There was an old Shelley Winters movie called The Mad Room. And there is something called The Green Gage Summer, which is this obscure little English film. I mean, you know, we were preserving and helping to preserve those titles. But some of it was laborious and very tedious because the clicks and pops that Cedar couldn't get out, we had to hand edit. And the dropouts had to be hand edited. And it took, I think I estimated for every one minute of film, it took 10 minutes of editing time or something like, yeah, yeah. So it was tedious. So up to this point, had you been making a fairly comfortable salary at all these different places? Yeah, it went up and down. You know, I'll tell anybody who's thinking about a career in audio, I didn't find audio to be an upward. There's, It's not a ladder, <laughs> you know. It's more like, I don't even know what, but it ain't a ladder. Like, you don't just get richer and richer the longer you're an audio engineer. At least I don't. Yeah. I think it's just two steps forward, one step back. So I started at NPR. I was making massive amounts of money in the four years I was there because of all the union rules and working overtime. And then I went to Colorado. And of course, the cost of living is lower. So I took a pay cut. And then I worked my way up and made lots and lots of money because I became indispensable. At least I'd like to think I did. (laughs) And then I, you know, I left that job. I started postmodern. It's like, well, this is a small business of 15 employees. So I took another pay cut and then I worked and worked and made myself indispensable. And then I got my master's degree and then I became a professor. And that was almost a lateral move, becoming a professor. But a university professor in recording arts mm. does not make huge amounts of money. I think a lot of people think, oh, if you have professor in front of your title, you must be balling. It's like, no, maybe if you're a business professor or, or a law professor, but nah. So you became a professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. Yes, That was 2005. Yeah, you did that for a while. What, 13 years? Yeah, sure did. Got tenure and everything. Wow. And you left all that. Yes, I walked away from it all. But one of the things I like to tell people is some people say, oh, if you have tenure, you have a job for life. Mm -hmm. It sounds more like a prison sentence to me. I don't know if I'm that way, like... How do I put it? You know, my dad was more of an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. My mom worked at the same place for 20 years, but she hated it. I think when you're in service to students, too, a lot of people don't think about this, but you are helping students to learn and shaping their careers while you have to work double hard to keep yourself relevant. Mm -hmm. So you have to go to conferences and conventions and network and publish, and you have to keep yourself out there. But I'm not sure that that's a way to foster your own independent spirit of creativity and learning if you're always giving away. you know. And that's not to say there aren't rewards. I mean, I had lots of great students and it was rewarding, I think, seeing those students make accomplishments. Although it was rewarding seeing your students find their way in careers, it's like sending your students off into private industry while you remain in academia is kind of bittersweet. Oh, yeah. I completely could see how that would be frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even though it it takes a chance, I think one of the other things that is really important is, especially when you're, whatever, 50, and you see or try and see yourself through other people's eyes, I think there's this perception that people think you're crazy or silly or naive about how easy or hard it will be to get a job. But I don't think it's ever been 
about that for me. My dream when I was younger wasn't necessarily to become a university professor, but for some people it is. And I'm not sure if I was still in Colorado, if I would still be working in academia. Hard to say. I don't, I'm not sure. Looks like you've written several papers for AES. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, if you're an AES member, you get the AES journal, right? Yeah. I'm just going to confess something to you, Leslie. I open those up and I start to read and I just go, okay, wait, I got to read that again. Okay. I got to read that again. I I get totally lost. It's like so deep and technical that I actually put it down many times. It's just too much. And here you have a list of papers that you've written for that journal. Well, it's, it's a little bit different. So AES does publish a journal. I only have one journal article. And that was a study we did with Dolby comparing multi-channel codecs back in 2006. So that's my only journal article. I have a lot of conference papers. So those are the events in New York and on the West Coast. And it's more like workshops. People are presenting the results of their research. So although the journal is filled with Delta and Sigma and all these Greek letters and Fourier transforms and crazy graphs and stuff, the conferences are a little bit more and conventions are more accessible. So you can learn about mixing and surround or you can learn about acoustics. You can learn about production techniques for hip hop music. You can learn about what are the cool things? Do they have louds? You can listen to loudspeakers. They'll have all these manufacturers demonstrating equipment. So, I mean, when you go to the shows, it's cool ear candy and you meet so many practitioners in audio. I've met so many people through the AES and that's a great network building tool is is my AES membership. And all the stuff that they do for students, like they have recording competitions. So I think it's amazing that people like Mandy Parnell or Paul Womack, who sit on these recording competitions, like, yeah, I would love for one of these celebrities to listen to my mix. Woo! I mean, so the value in all the AES events is is why I'm a member. It's not necessarily for the Blue Journal, although that's, of course, very valuable. But I mean, the AES is also, they make standards like AES 67, which is audio over internet protocol, AOIP. And they do the standards like the AES standards, like the AES connector. That's an AES standard. Yeah, tons of reasons why I'm involved and stay involved and encourage people to get involved with AES. You've also written a book called Women in Audio. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So my book, Women in Audio, again, sort of came out of this professorial role that I played in academia at Publisher Parish, right? And I think when you're going to devote a lot of time to publishing something and writing something, I should say, you want it to be meaningful. So the papers that I've done are meaningful as well, but I wanted to take on something larger. And around, I think, 2016-17 is when I pitched the idea to Focal Press. And that was around the Me Too time, which was the hashtag Me Too movement. And there were a lot of women's organizations forming in order to help mentor and train young girls and women in audio. And that wasn't lost on me. I mean, I I got to meet Terry Winston. I'd been following her work with Women's Audio Mission since she started it in 2004 or 2006. The first time I met her was at an AES show at the Wham booth. And Carrie Kyes was starting Sound Girls, which is also something that came out of an AES conference because they were doing a live sound, women in live sound event. So knowing that these things were happening and having access to these networks where I knew I could find women was the impetus for starting to write the book. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. From your perspective, what do you feel is the state of things with women in audio at this point? In 2020, I think it's pretty encouraging. There's a researcher I met named Liz Dobson who actually cataloged almost 60 organizations around the world that are dedicated to women in electronic music, women in, in audio technology. And that's saying quite a lot. And it's saying that this is something that young girls and women want to do. And I think that it's a very clear response to this misconception that you see in audio discussion forums, which still breaks my heart. You know, there's men out there who say, oh, there's no women in audio because it's not a girl thing. It's like this (laughs) is total crap. I mean, as we just discussed at the beginning of the interview, I knew how to thread a tape machine when I was a small child. So we can't say that it's not something that women are not drawn to. And so as I did profiles of these women, I, I did a hundred profiles. I actually did interviews with 70 women. And a lot of them tell the, the same story. I got into audio when I was little. I loved listening to things. I like designing things. You know, I was watching movies and was interested in the sound or I like to build or I like to think about how sound works. And so in the book. I have software and hardware designers, women in radio, film and television, acoustics, games, anything audio, we're there. And I think one of the women who I interviewed, I think it might have been Lenise Bent, who was the first woman to get a platinum record for her work on Auto American, the Blondie album. And she said, we're here. We've always been here. And it's not that we're not here. It's that we're not visible. Yeah. And I agree with that statement. Yeah, so it's this interesting dilemma 
I'm not sure it was a dilemma, but as I was writing the book, it was exhausting because I kept finding more and more women and women who would introduce me to other women. And it's like, there are actually so many women to write about. It's not a case that I wrote this book, Women in Audio, to find one or two. Mm -hmm. These unique unicorns, it's because I wanted to showcase the women who have been blazing a trail since Ada Lovelace and Sophie Germain and since Ethel Gabriel. And there's a documentary coming out about her that Soundgirls is working on. And about Vivian Carter Bracken, her record label was the first one to have the Beatles in America. So yeah, VJ Records was the first record label to release Beatles music in America. So just finding all of these women who have been doing their thing all along that we just don't hear about. And listeners, I will put a link in the show notes to Leslie's book, Women in Audio, so you can buy that. The link will be for Amazon. I encourage you to call up your local bookstore and see if they can order it for you. And I will also put a link in the show notes to our former WCA guest, Lenise Bent. She was on episode 259. One of the challenges that I face as a host of this show is my search for African-American women or black women in general in audio, not just from America, but black women in general in audio, that seems to be the unicorn to me. Yep. I was affectionately called a unicorn by somebody I met at an MPSC, Motion Picture Sound Editors Conference. And I'm like, okay, I'll be a unicorn. I just want to work. You can call me a unicorn. You can call me a fairy. I just want to work. So black women in audio, there's there's quite a few. I know dozens of them now. I think when I started writing the book, I knew five. And now I know a couple dozen. So there's Ebony Smith, who was presented with a Grammy certificate for her work on the Hamilton cast recording, Hamilton the Musical. There's Fela Davis of 23DB Productions. So she did live sound with Christian McBride, who's a Grammy winner. There's Abita Austin, who runs the Creative Suite up in New York and she cut her teeth at NYU. We learned about a sound engineer who's, and oh, forgive me, I I can't remember her name. I just um, got connected to her on Facebook, but if I dare switch windows out of this, I can give you her name. There's a live engineer for Beyonce is a black woman. There's Ianya Nolan who's doing live sound out in Los Angeles. So yeah, I mean, there's more than a couple. Okay. In Africa, there's Phoebe, who I got in touch with, and she's starting a program. They had two workshops, one in Nairobi, one in Kenya, and the list goes on and on. So, I mean, you know, I think if you know me, I think your problem is solved because <laughs> each one of them can introduce you to, to someone else. Well, that's good to know. Fela Davis is a friend. She has been on WCA number 198. I will also include a link to her. But it is a conundrum being a white male host in seeking out a diverse crowd of people, not only in audio, trying to get film and games and things just outside of music in general, but also diversifying the demographic of the show. is is It's on my mind quite a bit, so I really try to address it and try to make the effort to involve more people from different backgrounds in this show. Mm-hmm. So this is good. I'm glad that you and I could talk because you can introduce me to even more people. I just wanted to say Alexandria Perryman was the engineer who I was talking about before who works for NASA. And so I just met her. So there, there's a cool article about her that I'll share with you. So yeah, the book Women in Audio is a directory. All of the women that are in there 
who shared their stories with me, who I found. I mean, I think any of them would be welcome to talk to you and also to be reached out to in in any context for audio to be represented for the great work that they're doing. Absolutely. I want to shift topics on you, if I may. Where do you seek inspiration for your craft now? I'm really into Dolby Atmos right now. Hmm. And so immersive recording, I mean, if you've done an immersive recording, I want to hear it. And most of these immersive recordings aren't being, they don't have a lot of acceptance from the public at large because I don't think that the public at large really knows about this. But, you know, Dolby Atmos is getting adoption on Tidal, which is T-I-D-A-L, the music streaming platform. So, yeah, I've been following that very closely. And years ago, in 2014, I did immersive recording with my band, Esmeralda. We released a 5.1 Blu-ray disc. So that's out there. I think it's on CD Baby. And if it's not, if it's not, <laughs> just contact me because I still have copies. So yeah, I mean, immersive audio is, I think, where it's at. And I was at an AES conference and I heard the remastered Dolby Atmos version of Brush's Tom Sawyer mm-hmm. re-released in immersive. And it was freaking awesome. You know, I need to find out who recorded that because it, God, <laughs> you, you can't even describe what it's like to hear that first note of Tom Sawyer and the drums that come in, it blew my face off. So (laughs) that's freaking. So yeah, you need to hear that. But even back in the day when DVD audio and Super Audio CD came out, Darcy Proper, who I interviewed for my book, mastered a CD by Donald Fagan called Morph the Cat. That is a tight album, Hmm. even in CD. But if you're able to listen to that in 5.1, get Morph the Cat. That sucker is tight. It's very, very well recorded. Very, very well mastered. Huh. I've never heard of it. Yeah. I mean, there was even a DTS CD when DVD audio and Super Audio CD were out. There's a DTS demo CD that I got that had a song by Queen on it that I'd never heard of. I I can't remember the name. Insane Clown Posse had a cut on there. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, and I would play this stuff for my kids in class, or excuse me, the young adults in my class. I think they really liked it. And I think they really wanted to work with immersive audio, but it's just so hard getting people to buy the right equipment. That's for sure. Yeah, I don't have a sound bar. I don't want a sound bar. I want 12 freaking speakers <laughs> in my house. What constitutes success in audio for you from a professional perspective? The people who impress me are, of course, the people who are in L.A. recording Grammy-winning albums. And I think that's sort of like the bar that we've set for ourselves as recording artists, like, I want to get a Grammy. But I think the success, or, you know, if you're in my field, it's an Oscar for sound editing. I'd love to get an Oscar for sound editing. But not everybody can do that. You know, I'm not in Los Angeles. I've never worked in LA, but I watch a lot of movies and they sound great. But I think for each audio engineer to measure their own success, it's project by project, isn't it? Yeah. Like I was just working on a movie that came out called Rent-A-Pal and I'm very excited about another movie called A Feral World. And both of those are available through your streaming platforms. And I can't wait to see that movie, you know, on my over the top set box and listen to it again after listening to it a hundred times because I want to see if did I help tell that story seamlessly? Is the audio for that project beautiful? And I think there's a meme going around all the audio geek forums and stuff of some character hanging his head in shame or 
in the fetal position saying me after hearing a mix I did 10 years ago. (laughs) I mean, so I guess success is if you can listen to a mix you did 10 years ago and think, yeah, I did good. That was good. Yeah, That was a good mix. I think that question, what is success as an audio engineer is like, what is success in anything? Are you proud of your work? Do you enjoy your work? And I think that's where you have to be no matter what you're doing. Can you tell me about Mix Messiah Productions? Yes, I can. (laughs) That name came from a classmate of mine whose name I don't even remember. Maybe it was Derek or Daryl, I can't remember. But we were in between shooting a television project in college sometime in the early 90s. And I had said something and he said, Mix Messiah Productions. And I said, what? What are you talking about? I didn't say that. So it was like something he misheard and it sounded like Mix Messiah. And I thought, I'm going to have a company called Mix Messiah. So Mix Messiah Productions has been around for a long time. So anytime I did projects as a kid or like I did music for a puppet show with Barry Gordimer at NPR, I did it under the name Mix Messiah Productions. I did some scoring of a Earth, Wind & Fire acapella medley. I used that Mix Messiah Productions. So I've been doing stuff as Mix Messiah for a while. But now, fingers crossed, I've applied to occupy a office space here in Brighton so that I can have a proper studio. I've been working out of my home this whole time and I'm looking forward to getting a Dolby Atmos set up. That's my goal right now. So wish me luck. Oh, best of luck to you. Is it is it a process to get a space there? Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, just like anybody who's looking for space, I think it just has to check all the boxes. It's got to be close and it's got to be centrally located and it's got to have parking because Brighton's a pretty fair-sized city and it's got to have the right ceiling height and it's got to not disturb the neighbors. So yeah, it hasn't been easy, but fortunately I have some good colleagues who are looking out for me. So props to Anna Burtmark for having my back and helping me find a space. She's a really good colleague. And yeah, I mean, there's a really strong network and growing network called Women Who Are Sound, who started out as women in film sound here in England. And so it's been good to be part of a network. I mean, that's the advantage of of any network. Professionals giving each other advice, helping each other out. I want to ask you some business questions about working independently doing film sound. How do you decide what your value is financially, what you're going to charge per project? It's a balancing act. Well, first of all, you have to join a union. So I'm part of the Beck 2 union here, and I have to look at what the acronym stands for. I'll, I'll have that to you in a second. But they work together to publish a rate card. So... I don't have to guess. I actually know what the published rate is for somebody working on certain film with a certain budget who wants this service done. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if a similar thing has been published in the States, but I imagine it has. I'm not a member of the IATSE Local 700, but I'm sure they have a similar industry rate card. But then you also just talk to people and be in these communities and, and find out what the rates are. People talk and they look out for each other. So if somebody wants to offer you $50 or 50 pounds a day, it's like, no, <laughs> you know, please don't take that gig. And please encourage people to pay what you're worth. So you set your rate by knowing what the comparable rates are. And then of course, it's a business. You want to position yourself favorably mm-hmm. to get that work and to get a livable rate. So there's a little bit of that too. How do you network and promote yourself and generally get work? That's a good <laughs> 
<laughs> How do I do that? What's my business plan? I think it's just been coming together kind of slowly because, you know, in order to make a living, I've been teaching still. So I don't know. It's sort of like a trapeze act for me personally. I don't think that's necessarily good advice to give anybody. But networking is important. And I established myself in Colorado before I left. So a lot of my work is still coming from Colorado. But I have been getting work here as well, too. And I think it's just a matter of keeping your name out there. How do you keep your name out there? You talk to people. You network with people. You show up at the industry mixers, you show up at the Zoom webinars, you participate in panels and workshops and let people know what you're doing and what you can offer. I think Mixed Messiah Productions is still working on its business plan just in terms of what it's going to be offering. So that's still in development. Gotcha. And as far as gear is concerned, did you come to England with a bunch of gear or are you slowly acquiring stuff that you're going to put in this new space? I have so much gear, it's obscene. (laughs) And I think I'm a big hypocrite because I tell my kids to keep their Legos out of the floor. But right now in this sort of COVID pandemic time, you do not want to come into my house right now because my studio is like crammed. I have so much stuff. I've got speakers and racks of gear and musical instruments and monitors and stuff and stuff and stuff. And I cannot wait to get my own space just because to get it at what you're saying. I think when I do get established I'm going to be making a large investment. Well, what's important to you in the gear that you use? Transparency, acoustical transparency. The first time I heard the large Genelex at NPR back in the early 90s, they were behind a soffited wall and we had diffusers in the back of the room. And the first time I heard Noah Adams' voice over there, I'm like, Noah is actually in there. He's like in the speaker. Like, how how does that happen? (laughs) You know, another thing is when I use my test material, there's a test CD from Thomas Dolby in 1980-something. He made an album called The Flat Earth. And so there are frequencies in the opening track of The Flat Earth that don't come across all speakers that way. And there's also this really cool bass line that opens that track. And so whenever I put that on, or Donald Fagan's Morph the Cat is another one of my task materials. So those two things I want to hear on those speakers. And I'll know, yeah, for sure, how tight it is just because of how clean the recordings are. Yeah, so I mean, it also depends on when I tune the room, I think the thing I'm going to be looking for is bass control. You want your bass to be tight and not muddy. Let's see what else. And those those high, high, high frequencies, which I pray to God I can still hear. But yeah, there's there are certain tracks where those two albums I mentioned where you get that air that when you hear it, you know you're doing it right. Do you have to exercise any restraint when it comes to buying gear? Do you have a bit of an addiction? I don't have to exercise restraint. That's prescribed for me. I have two kids to feed, so yeah. my addiction has not gotten out of control. Let's see, what's the last thing? I bought a oculus headset for the whole five days i had that headset i was nervous i'm like i can't spend 699 pounds on a headset what am i crazy but it was cool as hell (laughs) i ended up sending it back i might get another one but i'm not doing vr right now so i have to stop but i think if i did have an addiction i would be buying stuff like that like i'd have one of those and a vive and i'd have freaking souped up pc to go with my souped up cheese grater mac which i don't own but if i had an addiction i would have a cheese grater mac pro are you a saver or a spender oh i'm a planner oh Uh i've never heard that before that's good wow i'm frugal i'm a planner yeah i use the franklin covey system (laughs) 
<laughs> Shout out to all my Franklin Covey. I'm, I'm kidding. I don't use Franklin anymore. But I was I cut my teeth on time and project management using a Franklin system. Yeah, I mean, you've got to prioritize. You've got to know what the thing is that you're trying to do. And then you save for it. And then you buy the thing. And if you're going to buy the thing and you haven't saved for it, you should have a plan in place to fund it, right? Right. But yeah, I don't. I'm not just going to go out and buy some shit and hope that things work out. I kind of. Yeah, especially with two kids. Yeah. Well, which I want to ask you about life outside of audio. How would you rate your work life balance? <laughs> <laughs> For those of you not watching, I just fell out of the camera, yeah. doubled over in laughter. I work all the time. Yeah. I work all the time. I work all the time. My very good friend, Jamil who is a drummer for Esmeralda, the band I was in. She sent me a greeting card, and it's a chicken holding its head under a wing. The head is decapitated, and the chicken is holding a phone up to its own head that is sitting under its arm, having been removed from its body. And the head is talking into the phone saying, ah, sorry, I can't. I've got some running around to do today. (laughs) So that's, she got that for me because that's appropriate for my personality, just freaking A-type, sit down, Leslie, you're too busy. Wow. So no, my work-life balance is stupid. What about interest outside of audio? I love languages, especially American Sign Language, and I have no one with whom to sign here in England, but thank God for Zoom. I still have some friends back in the States that I talk to. I love learning Spanish, French, German. Those are my three well, four. So I like ASL, French, Spanish, German, four languages. Wow. I love learning. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm starting to feel a little lazy, not only after looking at your resume, but talking to you and learning these new aspects of you. Wow. Very impressive. Oh, thank you. And what about what about health and exercise? Oh, I try. So for about three weeks during the lockdown, I ran three miles a day. It was great. And then I stopped doing that because I got hungry and tired and lazy. So I was eating pancakes for breakfast. So I'm like, I can't deal with the pandemic and I'm hungry. So yeah, yeah, not happening. But it's my plan to start a routine again, like everybody on again, off again. Where can people find out more about you? I don't know. I I think I put a whole bunch of stuff on Facebook and I swore to God I was going to stop. It's such an addiction, but it's got this just shameful reward of peer acceptance. It's silly, isn't it? Social media. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, Leslie.Gaston, all over the place. Okay. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to that. I love your AES member profile. We've really skimmed over a lot in a short period of time, and I'm sure we've missed some stuff. Is there anything in particular within your world of audio that we've missed that you think we should talk about before we go? Did we miss anything about your career that I completely just skimmed over? I got to meet Todd Rundgren. That was amazing. (laughs) I mean, he's the wizard, the true star, that guy. No, I think that's pretty much it. At some point, we'll meet in person, maybe at an AES show. Yeah. But great to meet you. Great to talk with you and get your perspective. Yeah, hang in there during the lockdown. And I guess we'll we'll, we'll talk on the other side of it at some point. Yeah, let's do. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate your time and you take care. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for being here. Talk to you later. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Leslie Gaston Bird here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I have a couple requests. Number one, head on over to iTunes and leave a review and let them know what you think of the show, if you think it's great. If you don't, you don't have to go there. And my second request is head on over to workingclassaudio.com and subscribe to the show. Subscribe with your favorite podcast aggregator, whether that's iTunes, Google, Spotify. There's a whole host of them, many to choose from. But uh, if you could do those two things for me, leave a review and subscribe to the show. I'd be very appreciative. Got to thank my crew and Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell for the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.